Well, it is wonderful to be able to know that our Redeemer lives. And when we say we know, it's not that we assume, it's not that we hope, or that we wish that our Redeemer lives. We know it is a historical reality that we celebrate. And that is why we are here. Because as Paul said, if Jesus did not rise again, then forget this. Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. On Good Friday, we recognized that Jesus' shameful cross was also his throne of glory. But we cannot fully understand the glory of Christ on the cross until we see it in light of his resurrection. In the words of one of my favorite theologians, Alistair McGrath, the cross, viewed in light of the resurrection, became transformed from a story of pointless carnage and hopelessness to the passionate and powerful proclamation of the God who stooped down from heaven himself in order to bring humanity back to him. And I invite you this morning to turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, as we reflect on the inconceivable reality of Jesus' resurrection and its transformative effect on his disciples in the hope that it would also transform you and me. John chapter 20, our brother Ainsley began the re, uh, read the first part of it. And we are told in verse 1 that before the dawn of the first day, Mary Magdalene, and we know comparing it with other gospel accounts, that she did not go alone, but she went with a group of women. But John chooses to focus our attention on Mary Magdalene. They go to the place where Jesus was buried. They knew where it was. It was a new tomb. The only body that lay there was that of Jesus. But to their dismay, when they got to the tomb, they saw that it was open. The stone was no longer there. And Mary thought that the 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes, that very expensive collection of spices, had attracted grave robbers and that they had taken Jesus' body in order to salvage as much of the spice as they could. And so we are told that she runs to tell John and Peter, telling them in verse 2, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. See, Mary could not imagine that Jesus had risen again. Peter and John shared her sentiment. They run to the tomb, and John, being the younger of the two disciples, gets there first. But he stays at the entrance, although he could see that the linen cloths 
were lying there and there was no body. Now Peter, being Peter, gets to the tomb and runs straight in. And he sees the strips of linen that had been wrapped around Jesus and the cloth napkin that had been on Jesus' face. If this was a a case of grave robbery, then the grave robbers would not have left these items to recover the spices. They, They would have instead taken these items in order to recover the spices. But they are undisturbed, as if Jesus' body had melted through the wrappings. I remember with our youngest, Daniel, his first Christmas, he was about nine months old, we gave him a Lindor chocolate. But we kept it wrapped, because we're mean people. (laughs) And the kid knew this was chocolate, so he held it and held it and held it and held it until finally the chocolate melted out and then (laughs) started licking. It's as if that's what had happened to Jesus' body. It had melted through, leaving the wrappings untouched. And that's the same thing that John sees when he runs into the tomb, when he follows Peter into the tomb. But we are told in verse 8, John saw and believed. And I think Herman Ritterboss explains it well. Not only the emptiness of the grave, but above all, the sight of the cloths and the witness borne by this whole scene aroused faith in him. The form of the verb indicates the breakthrough of a new beginning. Unlike Mary, who from the removal of the stone and the open tomb could only conclude that people had taken Jesus away in the beloved disciple, at sight of all this, a sense arose that something else must have happened with Jesus' body, that another hand, God's hand, had been at work here. With this one sober statement, the evangelist leaves the matter. He does not define this faith. It was like a new certainty that took hold of this disciple while understanding was still lacking. After all, in verse 9, it says, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. But we can be sure that Jesus had risen from the dead because the two angels in verse 12, sitting where Jesus' body had been, confirms that God's hand was behind the empty tomb. Peter and John had gone home, but Mary had stayed. She saw the two angels But she was so distraught, she could not realize the significance of their presence. And even when these angels asked her, why are you crying? These angels were telling her, Mary, this is not a time to be crying. This is a time to be rejoicing. 
But Mary is so hung up on the assumption that somebody had stolen Jesus' body. She cannot realize the significance. You see, even Jesus' followers were not expecting to see him rise on the third day. Now, at this point, Jesus steps in. We are told in verse 14 that Jesus was standing there behind her. He approaches her, and he echoes the angel's challenge. Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? But still, maybe Mary's eyes were so puffed up from weeping Or probably she was just so distraught. She could not recognize the very voice that had freed her from the grip of seven demons. She looks at Jesus and she thinks he's the gardener. Maybe he looks familiar, but he's got to be the gardener. This can't be Jesus. So she asks him to show her where He had laid Jesus' body if he had taken him. And so the good shepherd calls his own sheep by name. And he says, Mary. Finally, he breaks through the fog of her grief. And from weeping, she grabs Jesus and calls him, Rabbi, teacher. She hangs on to him as if she's trying to keep him from disappearing, maybe. (laughs) But Jesus tells her, look at verse 17. Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. You see... Jesus' death and resurrection had brought about a change in the disciples' status. United with Christ by faith, they had been adopted as sons. So that Jesus could now say, my father is your father. And as he promised, his ascension to the father that he talks about here, would bring them into a fuller experience of God's presence. He had told them in John chapter 14. Turn with me there, please. John 14, verse 15 to 18. I'm sorry I didn't put it on the slides. I want you to stay awake, and so flip through, please. John 14, 15 to 18. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And friends, we enjoy that same privilege that Peter, John, Mary, and the first disciples enjoy You see, the resurrection transformed the desolation of Jesus' death into eternal intimacy with a triune God. That's why Jesus tells Mary, don't hold on to me as if I'm about to disappear. 
It is not a, a time to cling to Jesus as if he's going to go away. It is a time to spread the good news that he has risen. And that's precisely what Mary goes and does. He tells his disciples that he has risen with a body that she herself had touched. But this resurrection body of Jesus is not quite like his old body. Yes, it can be touched. There's something more. See, that night, we are told in verse 19, as his disciples gathered behind closed doors for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. I don't know if you watch Star Trek, but this kind of reminds me of when they, uh, they go into the transporter and then suddenly materialize wherever they're going. Jesus' resurrection body passed through locked doors as if they weren't there. I don't know how he did it, but the important thing we are told is that the disciples' fear is transformed into joy. And Jesus says to them twice, peace be with you. And these words are more than just a greeting. D.A. Carson would say, though a common word, shalom was also the embracing term used to denote the unqualified well-being that would characterize the people of God once the eschatological kingdom had dawned. Jesus' shalom on Easter evening is the complement of it is finished on the cross. For the peace of reconciliation and life from God is now imparted. And Jesus, in saying to them, peace be with you, is proclaiming what his death and resurrection had accomplished. He has triumphed over sin, over Satan, over death. In his resurrection, he has brought in the new creation. And as the victorious king, he sends out his disciples in verse 21. Notice what he says. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. He sends out his disciples to follow in his footsteps, ministering in absolute obedience to the Father as he did. And relying completely on the Spirit as he did. And he breathes on them, or more accurately, he breathes as an active parable foreshadowing the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is that same Spirit who would empower them to proclaim the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection calling for a response of faith. That's what Jesus means in verse 21 and 22. 
uh, verse 23, when he says, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. It is not that we have become God. <laughs> That's still God's prerogative. But in proclaiming the gospel, we hold out to, the, to people the promise of forgiveness. If they believe in Jesus, they will be forgiven. But to reject Jesus is to remain in your sin. And it is our calling and privilege as the people of God to be the people whom he sends out to proclaim the hope of forgiveness of sins, of reconciliation with this holy God that Jesus has secured by his death and resurrection. And we, as his people, embody the peace which this broken world desperately longs for because we point forward to that great day when he returns and the new creation will be consummated in all its beauty. If you want to recall what we talked about in Ephesians, that's why we call Crestwick, Crestwick, no place. Or in Greek, utopia. The embodiment of that new age, that new world that God is bringing about. The already not yet presence of the kingdom. Now, Jesus might promise and guarantee peace. But I recognize that today, many people find Jesus' resurrection implausible. The response is, well, that's nice if you believe it, but I find that hard to believe. And I would say to you, well, you know what? That's nothing new. Even in the first century, the notion of resurrection was inconceivable. We see that in Mary. We see that in Peter and John. They would believe that there would be a final resurrection on the last day. But for the resurrection to happen in the present, while they're still alive, that was just not going to happen. And that was Thomas's position in verse 24 onwards. See, he hadn't been with his fellow disciples when Jesus first appeared to them. And even when they told him that they had seen the Lord, he refused to believe. And we can understand it. The crucifixion of Jesus was just too painful for him. The, for him, the crucifixion of Jesus meant the death of his hopes. He had already invested his whole life into Jesus. He didn't want to be disappointed further. And so he wanted concrete proof. He says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And we can sympathize. Because for many of us, faith is a struggle. And genuine faith ought never to be afraid of hard questions. 
See, the truth of the resurrection is too important to accept blindly. Os Guinness would say, the Christian faith invites people to an examined faith. Although we Christians should believe simply, we should not simply believe. For one thing, the pale brand of modern faith that lapses into easy believism has little in common with the virile attitude of understanding plus commitment that is the biblical notion of faith. God is truth. So no one who is casual about truth can claim to be a true lover of God or of Christ. Thomas' lack of faith was not a matter of failing to straddle an impossible credibility gap, but of balking at a simple step of trust on the evidence of inescapable reasons. But here's the goodness of our Savior. He does not reject Thomas. He understands his weakness. And so a week later, we are told in verse 26, Jesus graciously appeared to Thomas while he was with the other disciples. And again, he materialized into their midst despite locked doors. And he tells Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. And Thomas, and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas' skepticism is transformed into worship. Look at verse 28. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. That is not an exclamation of surprise. Thomas is not swearing. This is the declaration, the odd confession of a devout Jew who recognizes that the resurrection, that Jesus truly rose again, and that resurrection confirms that Jesus truly is God himself. See, that declaration of Thomas is the highest profession of faith in the Gospel of John. It is the equivalent of the prologue. The Word became flesh and dwelt among men, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus receives the worship of Thomas. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And in saying that, he issues a challenge to you and me. See, we don't see the risen Christ in our day. But we have the credible, reliable witness of his disciples recorded in the pages of Scripture. They testify to you and me that Jesus died and rose again, proving his claim to be the Son of God incarnate. Indeed, that's why 
John wrote this book. Look at verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I appreciate the way Tim Keller fleshes out the implications of this reality. He says, Jesus claimed to be the Lord God of the universe who had come to earth to give himself for us so that we could live for him. That is a call for total allegiance. You will have to either run away screaming in anger and fear or run toward him with joy and love and fall down at his feet and say, I am yours. Nothing in the middle makes any sense unless you're running away from him or running toward him. You actually don't really know who he is. See, that is the challenge of Jesus' resurrection. Will you run away from him into death? Or will you run to him into life? Now, what kind of life are we talking about? Well, that's what chapter 21 talks about. It is the story of how Jesus restored Peter after his horrible failure. Peter had been so sure of himself. I like Peter. I'm a lot like him. I suffer from foot and mouth disease. He said in chapter 13, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And to his credit, when Jesus was arrested, he was ready with sword. He even cut off the ear of a servant. Here's the problem. Confronted by a servant girl, he denied that he was Jesus' disciple. And you can understand a momentary lapse in judgment, right? But to do it not once or twice, but three times before a group of men sitting by the fire, warming themselves, and before the relative of a man, of the man whose ear he had cut off, Peter denied Jesus a third time. His credibility was shot. His own self-image was broken. But here's the wonderful truth. Just as Jesus would not give up on Thomas, Jesus would not give up on Peter. And that miraculous catch of fish early that morning would have reminded Peter and the rest of, of, his, of the disciples how Jesus had called him to be his disciple in Luke chapter 5, verse 1 to verse 10. And the question that might have been in Peter's mind was, has that call been rescinded? 
Have I fallen too far? Well, Jesus invites them to breakfast. And after breakfast, Jesus asked Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And humbled in verse 15, Peter could only respond, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. See, he no longer compares himself to his fellow disciples. He simply appeals to Jesus' knowledge of the hearts of men. And Jesus now begins to restore Peter. He affirms Peter's love by commissioning him, feed my lambs. Imagine how Peter must have felt to know that Jesus still had something for him to do. He still wanted him to serve. But then imagine his heart sinking yet again when Jesus asks him again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He says the same thing. And then Jesus asks a third time, and this time Peter is hurt. Because Jesus is deliberately recalling how Peter had denied him. But Jesus isn't rubbing salt in Peter's wounds. In asking him three times, do you love me? Jesus was undoing Peter's threefold denial with a threefold affirmation of love. And with each question, Jesus confirms Peter's love. Again, I appreciate Tim Keller. Jesus is saying something like this to Peter. Your identity was based so much on your own bravery and wisdom and goodness that my love seemed nothing more than wages you had earned. But now that you've seen your sin and turned to me, now your failure plunged into my grace and forgiveness will make you a leader. For who can speak into people's lives better than someone who finally knows their own heart? And here's the great thing. Jesus does not simply restore Peter to service. He gives him an implicit promise that he will follow Jesus to the end. He will not deny Jesus again. Look at verse 18 and 19. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. What's that all mean? Well, look at verse 19. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. This same failure would now persevere to the end. And it would not be because of his own strength. It would be the fruit of the Spirit's work. It would be the fruit of the transforming effect of the resurrection. 
it would be the fruit of Peter having that new life that is brought about by the Spirit's work. It would be the fruit of the Spirit's transforming presence, empowering Peter to be faithful. And that is why Jesus could tell Peter in verse 19, follow me. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, the thief comes not but to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. That is the abundant life that Jesus came to bring. Life in obedient relationship with him who loves us unconditionally, who perseveres even when we fail, who continues to love us, and who loves us too much to leave us the way we are, who loves us and so transforms us. And it's the same challenge Jesus issues to you and me, to follow him who loved us and gave himself for us. And as we follow him, we will find life in all its flourishing and all its fruitfulness because he will transform us as he transformed Peter. And as he leaves us with this challenge, John closes his gospel by affirming that his account is a selective but truthful account of who Jesus is and what he did. He says, Jesus, verse 25, chapter 21, verse 25, uh, 24 and 25. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. His point is that the truthfulness of his account compels you and me to follow Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, who stooped down from heaven himself in order to bring humanity back to him. Will you not run to him, and cling to him in faith, worship, adoration, and submission? Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that indeed we can call you Father because Christ laid down his life. The Son sacrificed himself so that united with him in his death and resurrection, we might share in his privileges. So that united with him, 
we would be adopted as sons. We thank you that we have died and risen with Christ through faith so that now we live in the life of the new creation. Life in relationship with him who is the fountain of life. Life lived the way it was designed to be. Not lived for the self, but lived for the purposes of him who loved us and gave himself for us. Father, you know our hearts. You know the heart of each person here. We pray, Father, that each one of us here would come to know and see the glory of Christ. That for those who are strangers to your grace, that you would, in the words of Paul, cause the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ to shine in their hearts so that they may know Christ and in knowing Christ know you whom to know is eternal life. Not simply life that never ends, but life that is worth living, life that is full of meaning, life abundant and flourishing. Father, thank you for this life and cause us as your people to, be, to delight in you, to be so awed by you. But like the disciples, we would not be able to keep to ourselves the things that we have seen and heard. As we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.